Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and we're calling this week's show Barriers. Now, here in our fair federal city, you'll find physical barriers all over the place. Fences, roadblocks, those ubiquitous bollards. But as we'll hear over the next hour, not all barriers are so tangible, so concrete, like the barriers to housing or jobs. This sends a message that hopefully will put people in a better position to lead safer, more stable lives. Or the barriers that determine who and what is represented on the theatrical stage. For that conversation to continue happening, that is the key. When we stop talking about it, that's when we're lost. But to start off today's Barriers show... Let's go uh, see how rough it is out in the bay. We're going to take a little boat trip. Fire in the hole. We're zooming through Hog Island Bay off the Finger Peninsula known as Virginia's Eastern Shore. Our driver... Everybody warming up. ...is Barry Truitt, chief conservation scientist with the Nature Conservancy. The nonprofit owns and protects more than half of Virginia's barrier islands the 23 naturally shifting land masses that help buffer the mainland from storms. Barry co-edited a book called Seashore Chronicles, Three Centuries of the Virginia Barrier Islands. And if you see that tower out there on the horizon, that's where we're going. That's, uh, that's where the town used to be. That town was Broadwater, a village of about 100 to 200, 250 people, depending whom you ask, on the lower end of Hog Island. Hog Island is four miles long, and because the barrier islands naturally shift and change so much, it can range from one to two miles wide. This end of the island used to be like a mile and a half wide, and now the ocean is right on the other side of that bush line there. It's pretty narrow. Thanks to Hog Island's natural erosion, coupled with a hurricane that pummeled the place in 1933, the village of Broadwater was pretty much abandoned by the early 1940s. Nowadays, it's little more than an expanse of sand dunes and ruins. Uh, there's a couple of sidewalks up in the sand dunes that if you look real hard, you can find. But back in the day, like the late 1800s, early 1900s, you would have seen a thriving little community here, leading a simple rural life. They had a post office, a general store, a Coast Guard station. A school, a church, a lighthouse. There was a hotel at one point, a hunt club. A government wharf here lined with uh, shucking houses, uh, scalloped in oysters and clams. Not to mention a few dozen. We're going to go over what we call Lil Hog Island. Houses. I think every house here came from Hog Island originally, except the very last one on the road. And as 72-year-old Hog Island descendant Kenny Marshall is showing us from the front seat of his pickup truck, a number of those Hog Island houses are now in communities on Virginia's mainland including Oyster, Wachaprig, Nassauatics, and this seaside village, Willis Wharf. Let me show you this. This was my mother's brother's house. That old gray house over there is where I live. That's my house. That was two separate single-story rooms, room upstairs, room downstairs, on Hog Island. And I tell folks that my house has more miles on it than my pickup. Indeed, when Hog Island's residents packed up their stuff, they made a point of rolling their houses onto barges and towing them to the mainland. Some families even exhumed and transported their dead. A prescient thing to do, since these days, Kenny Marshall guesses that the Hog Island Cemetery... That's probably uh, close to a mile right in the ocean now. Kenny Marshall wasn't born on Hog Island, but his 76-year-old sister, Yvonne Marshall, now Yvonne Widgeon, was. 
The family moved to Willis Wharf when she was two years old. I don't remember anything about actually living on the island since I was such a small child. But I've just been told by my parents. My mother was born there and all of her family from generations. At least seven generations I can go back and probably more than that. I just haven't done all the research yet. Yvonne may not have collected that information, but she's definitely collected something else. Artifacts from her island home. After my parents died, I really realized the importance of uh, the history of Hog Island and our family. My parents, my grandparents, they were gone. I could have asked them many, many questions that I didn't. So I had a little house that had come from Hog Island. It was the first post office, as a matter of fact. And we turned it into a museum. Through the years, surviving Hog Islanders offered up items like household supplies and tools to Yvonne's museum. When she eventually closed up shop, she donated all the stuff. We have over 7,500 artifacts. Here. And we've never bought nor asked for anything. They've all found their way individually. We're in Machapongo, Virginia, at the Barrier Islands Center, where Laura Vaughn is executive director. I would love to look at some of the artifacts that have been collected from from the islands. They're beautiful. Since 1996, the Barrier Islands Center has been preserving the heritage of Virginia's Barrier Islands through exhibits and educational programs. It's situated in a late 19th century farmhouse, and once you ascend the creaky wooden stairs, you encounter a bunch of galleries, one of which is dedicated entirely to Hog Island. You'll see chairs from the short-lived Hog Island Hotel, the Lighthouse Keeper's Journal from 1872 through 1897, and on one wall you can read typed and hand-scrawled family recipes from the island's biggest holiday celebration, the 4th of July. What are some of the recipes for? Oh, well, here's one for oysters. It says we'd steam them, stew them up, fry, dip an egg, then flour. (laughs) You get to know the person by reading their own words. Other recipes include scallops, crackling bread, terrapin, clam fritters, and marsh hens. You kill the hens on a real high tide. The higher the better. So, I mean, you know, there's some wisdom. (laughs) And then you clean them and you skin them, cut them up and fry them. And that's, um, who is that? Eugene Bowen. Like the Marshalls, the Simpsons, the Dowdies, Bowen is a name you'll see a lot of in the Hog Island Gallery. This is some of the furniture they literally stood on to survive the storm of 33. May and Wendell Bowen. And they had just bought this furniture for $39 from Sears. Another Bowen family artifact is the silk scarf that Eli Bowen wore with a gold clip as part of his U.S. Coast Guard uniform. But there's one piece of Bowen memorabilia. Can you show us what you brought with you today? Yes, I can. That you won't find on display. This is a uh, drum spear or a fish spear. And what it is is a scaled-down harpoon head. My great-grandfather cast that out of bronze, and he used to use it on Hog Island. Norris Bowen was born on Hog Island on May 9, 1939. As a matter of fact, I was the last person born on Hog Island. And he says he's thought about donating his great-grandfather's fish spear to the Barrier Island Center. But it has a lot of sentimental value, so I'd like to keep it with me when I die, either my wife or my grandkids. They can bring it down. So I was going to say, there are so many Bowen family artifacts here, but this one's not in the collection. No, it's not. Norris left Hog Island in fall 1940. He wasn't even a year and a half old. So like Yvonne Widgen, Norris doesn't really remember life on Hog Island. 
But after his family relocated to Willis Wharf, for a while they made a point of visiting Hog Island each year. So as soon as we got out of school, we'd pack up Mom, my little sister, my two brothers and I, and my father, and we stayed all summer. And he worked. And actually, we worked too. We didn't realize it. (laughs) But we would help him with the oysters and with the clams and so on and so forth. After the family stopped their yearly excursions, Norris would still return to Hog Island every now and again. In fact, coincidentally, he was sent there for a spell while serving in the U.S. Coast Guard. But if you ask him what it's like to go back to his childhood home now, is there any bittersweet feeling? A lot of longing, a lot of sadness, you know. But overriding that was like, this is where I belong, this is where I came from. And it's important to keep that in mind, he says, and to honor and preserve his home's history, even if today it looks nothing like it used to. But then again, he adds, neither does much of Virginia's eastern shore. Life on the eastern shore, as it was, is fast becoming a thing of the past because it's becoming so commercialized. There's more to living than trying to please people or having things. It all boils down to the way I was raised, and I was raised the way most Hog Islanders were raised. Be happy with yourself and what you do. And I am. I am. Want to see Virginia's barrier islands then and now? We have historical photos as well as present-day shots on our website, metroconnection.org. We'll head now to Maryland and focus on barriers of a legal sort. Transgender people in the old line state can be fired from their jobs, denied housing, and barred from movie theaters, restaurants, and other public accommodations because of their gender identity. But a bill working its way through the Maryland State Senate would address that. At a rally earlier this week, Governor Martin O'Malley was among those who spoke about the bill. I think regardless of political party, all of us can agree that in every person there is a human dignity. And we are called upon to treat every individual equally under the law. Lauren Ober brings us the story. Jennifer Fischetti remembers the day she was outed like it was yesterday. July 24th of 2004, I was out with some friends after work. And late, we went to go get something to eat uh, after the, the bars had closed. And there was a coworker of mine sitting at the counter. And he looked at me. And so I had to turn around and tell my friend that we needed to leave. And I would explain when we got outside. At the time, Fischetti was showing up to work as her biological gender, male. But in her personal life, she lived as a woman. She walked a fine line with her gender expression, and seeing a coworker out in the world was potentially dangerous. He didn't know that I was transgender. Up until that point, I would present as a male for fear of things like losing my job and, and, and others. As soon as the coworker realized who he had seen, he sent a torrent of text messages to everyone with whom he worked, exposing Fischetti as transgender. When Fischetti, who lives in Baltimore, returned to her job the following Monday, everyone knew. Then, when I got there on Wednesday morning for a manager's meeting, before the meeting started, another employee pulled me out. 
uh, and took me to another room and, and terminated me. Fischetti's manager suggested her work was, quote, off, even though her performance reviews up to that point had been exemplary. Fischetti believed she was fired ostensibly for being transgender, and that termination was totally legal under current Maryland law. But it's something lawmakers are trying to address with the bill currently making its way through the state Senate. The Fairness for All Marylanders Act is sponsored by Senator Richard Madalino of Montgomery County and has the support of 22 co-sponsors. It would prohibit discrimination based on gender identity in housing, employment, and public accommodations. Madalino says this bill has been a long time coming. When Maryland added sexual orientation to our anti-discrimination law in 2001, we were the very last state to move forward with adding gays and lesbians without also including gender identity. And so now we're going back and trying to add gender identity, as we have for the last like six years, trying to add gender identity. A number of jurisdictions around the region already have these protections in place. In Baltimore City, Baltimore County, Hyattsville, Howard County, and Montgomery County, as well as the District of Columbia, it's illegal to discriminate based on someone's gender identity. And in this case, gender identity means any way a person chooses to express gender, regardless of whether that person self-identifies as transgender. Supporters of the bill say it's critical to curbing the kind of discrimination that people like Jennifer Fischetti have endured when trying to get jobs, housing, or even a meal in a restaurant. This bill is incredibly necessary because trans people are facing discrimination in the very areas that are covered. Trans people are losing jobs because of being trans. The Fairness for All Marylanders Act is about providing the legal recourse to start addressing those instances. Keith Tyrion of Equality Maryland says part of the difficulty in getting previous iterations of this bill passed is a fundamental misunderstanding by some lawmakers about who transgender people are and who they're not. It's a misconception not recognizing that a trans person's gender identity is something that is deeply held. To transition is a process that one doesn't consider lightly. Then there's the bathroom issue. Here's Senator Anthony Muse of Prince George's County during a recent hearing on the anti-discrimination bill. Whether it's real or perceived, uh, major or minor, here is an issue in, in the face of people, get up and, and I go into a women's bathroom. You've heard this, so you know where, where I'm going with this. And, and someone walks in with a little girl, and I'm a man, or at least in their opinion. I think that you're setting it up both ways for a dangerous situation. Basically, what Muse was getting at is a question lawmakers often bring up in the face of gender identity non-discrimination legislation. And that is, what happens if a man posing as a woman, assaults a woman in a restroom and claims he was allowed to be there because he's transgender. It's a hypothetical that advocates like Keith Tyrion and supporters like Senator Richard Madalino have heard time and time again. Madalino responded to his colleagues' concerns. I would just point out, Senator, that these laws have been in place around this country and around our state for years in some cases, decades. That situation has not occurred. Indeed, there have been no reported cases in jurisdictions that offer these protections of anyone claiming to be transgender in order to commit a crime. 
If that were ever the case, the anti-discrimination laws would never cover criminal activity. Trans people like Jennifer Fischetti say they simply want the same civil rights that their contemporaries enjoy. When Fischetti was outed and consequently fired, her worst fears reared up. Getting a new job wasn't my biggest concern. My biggest concern was having my life end, literally. Growing up, the stigma against transgender people was so severe that growing up, for me, I felt that if I was found out as being transgender, my only option was to commit suicide. Fischetti survived the outing and the firing, and now she lives her life openly as a transgender woman. She went back to school and is studying public policy, and she hopes the next time she lands a job, she won't have to worry about whether her chosen gender will prevent her from keeping it. I'm Lauren Ober. In a minute, breaking down the barriers that can keep low-income kids from succeeding at school. If you haven't had a college-going experience at those types of institutions, it's hard to grasp what they may offer. That's just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. As we continue this week's Barriers show, we'll focus next on the barriers that sometimes keep low-income students from going to college. The D.C. public schools are making a big push to get kids ready for that next step after high school graduation. And Kavitha Cardoza joins us now to talk about those efforts. Hi, Kavitha. Hi, Rebecca. So it kind of goes without saying that applying to college can be very intimidating, right? All that paperwork, so many colleges, so confusing. Students from higher-income backgrounds are prepared for college a lot earlier. Here's President Barack Obama talking about his daughter's experiences. Malia and Sasha, by the time they're in seventh grade at Sidwell School here, are already getting all kinds of advice and this and that and the other. By contrast, the president says only 30% of low-income students enroll in college right after high school, and by their mid-20s, only 9% earn a bachelor's degree. There are a lot more barriers for students who are low-income. I spoke about this with Kevin Hudson in the DCPS Office of College and Career Readiness. He says sometimes students haven't even heard of certain universities. What may be seen as a highly selective, world-famous institution often are not known by students. If you haven't had a college-going experience at those types of institutions, it's hard to grasp what they may offer because it's an acquired language. So then what are D.C. public schools doing to better prepare these students? They're getting started a lot earlier. They encourage teachers to talk to students early on about college. And in some third grade classrooms, you can see college pennants on the walls. But at the high school level, they're training guidance counselors. Cornell University recently conducted a workshop here to explain what admissions officers are looking for. DCPS is also inviting universities, including Princeton, MIT, and Brown, to host receptions in city high schools. And school officials are encouraging high school students and their parents to attend workshops to learn about the admissions process. It's a scary, 
scary process. And so the more that we can make sure in all of our schools from kindergarten through 12th grade, this conversation about the college application process, we demystify the process and, and, and make it something attainable for students. Our students say throughout their time that they want to go to college, but a lot of times it's in the how that there becomes a disconnect. Another way DC is trying to prepare more students for college is by trying to get more of them to take AP exams. All traditional public schools in DC now offer at least four AP courses, and the district pays student exam fees. A recent report from the College Board shows some of those efforts are paying off. For the first time, the district is ranked number one in the country for access to AP courses, and of the students taking those courses, a third are African-American. Well, that sounds like a real success story. Well, it's not all positive news, though, Rebecca, because just 14% of graduating seniors in 2013 passed an AP exam during their high school years. But when so many students fail the exam, doesn't that just feed into their own fears that maybe, you know, they're not good enough, college just isn't for them? That's exactly what I asked Kaya Henderson, the Chancellor of D.C. Public Schools. She says it does not. Prior to our push to get more and more kids into AP, children, especially low-income children and children of color, weren't even getting the opportunity to try. And for a lot of our young people, just having a teacher believe in you enough to say, I think you can do this, has a transformative effect. And we have to teach our young people that even if they can't conquer an obstacle the first time, that they have to be persistent. Trevor Packer with the College Board says across the country, 300,000 students could take AP courses but don't. These students are ready for them academically, but they just feel they aren't good enough or are discouraged from taking them. You know, sometimes teachers and guidance counselors themselves don't know about what's out there or they have low expectations of their students. But Packer says this is a big mistake. Students that do rise to the level of achieving a score of three or better on an AP exam have significantly higher college completion rates than their matched peers, which makes sense. They've been given college on training wheels in some ways in high school that gets them ready for what they're going to face as a freshman when they have so many other distractions on campus. So they've been given this experience that results in scholarship decisions. 33% of colleges and universities base scholarship decisions on AP. And of course, if you're academically prepared for college, chances are you can graduate in four years. Which I understand is not the case for more than half of students who are entering college. Exactly. Well, Kavitha Cardoza, thank you so much for this update on what's happening in D.C. public schools. Thanks for having me. This report is part of American Graduate, Let's Make It Happen, a public media initiative to address the dropout crisis, supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And we're curious, what do you think is the best way to get students ready for college-level work? You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or find us on Twitter. Our handle is at wamumetro. turn now to trees. In Washington, D.C., as in a lot of cities, certain kinds of trees tend to be particularly popular. Think American elms or Bradford pear trees. But sometimes these trees aren't the best barriers to all that exhaust, road salt, and other pollution that urban life brings, nor do they necessarily promote biodiversity in the urban ecosystem. 
This week, the nonprofit organization Casey Trees hosted an entire symposium on this very issue. Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson caught up with one of the speakers, National Arboretum Research Geneticist Richard Olson. The first thing that comes to mind is people think of uh, establishing a resilient urban forest. Uh, the lessons from the past in the urban forest has been uh, when you plant a monoculture of, of species, and uh, in, in, in the case of like American elm, where we were so dependent on American elm, uh, and then you have an introduction of an exotic pest or, or disease that affects that species, you have a tremendous loss of of the urban forest at one time. So the first thing that comes to mind is resilience, and you, you need diversity so that one new pest or disease doesn't wipe out a significant portion of your of your tree canopy. Right now, I mean, like in Washington, for example, would you say the city's doing a pretty good job of planting the trees that people in your field would like to see get planted? And, you know, other communities in our region, you think that we're doing an okay job of, of planting the right types of trees? I, they're doing a pretty good job, I think, in terms of understanding the need for diversity. It's always a tough lesson. You can only plant what's available in the nursery industry. That's a, that's a, that's a, a good lesson. The nursery industry is only going to produce what they can sell. And I think with emerald ash borer, uh, Dutch elm disease, that people are certainly learning that diversity is key. And also with the rise of urban ecology, uh, you know, prior to about 15, 20 years ago, ecologists stayed away from the cities. You know, that, that was not ecology. That, that was the urban environment. And people are starting to realize that, you, you know, with urbanization, uh, that it is an environment, uh, that it is an ecosystem. And... We have to understand how it functions. In terms of, uh, you know, deciding, you know, let's say I'm, I'm in the urban forestry department. I'm trying to decide what kind of trees get planted. I imagine that aesthetics is a big part of it. But you've also told me that resistance to things like road salt is a huge issue for cities. Talk about that. The urban environment, we have to, you know, this is a good winter to, to explain this. Uh, we put down a lot of de-icing salts in the winter, and that sort of... Uh, when you get these melts and you get it right about springtime, all that salt has to go somewhere, and it's going into the beds. If you don't have a lot of rain, you don't have a melt, it sits there, it can build up, and then ultimately that is being exposed to the urban tree's roots. And so uh, you have to look for species that are tolerant. A lot of our urban trees come from the eastern bottomland hardwood forest, so trees that can naturally take low oxygen environments, flooded environments. That's exactly what we have in urban soils. So on top of that, you have to throw in what do we want as a society as a tree? You know, and historically, we didn't want it to be messy. Uh, we wanted to have extended appeal. You know, we want it to look good in all four seasons. Uh, we want the leaves to just fall off and disappear. We don't want to have to clean them. You know, uh, we don't want fruit. Uh, we don't want slippery flowers. We don't want it to be allergenic. You know, there's all these things we want. And then there is the shape. Uh, we want them to be tall and narrow because we have, they can't be big and broad anymore. They have to be short under power lines so they don't in, interfere. So we're really asking a lot, and we want it to look good. And that's traditionally what we've asked. You have to be tolerant, and you have to look good. And then sort of the new paradigm in terms of diversity in the urban forest is not just the diversity of the tree species itself, but how does it play in the larger ecosystem? How does, does it contribute uh, value to the urban forest in terms of these other trophic levels. And that's a whole new ball game. So in essence, we're saying we want trees to be eaten by insects so that they support birds and then make our uh, the urban environment that much more wonderful. So that's a, a, a shift. We're, we've gone from purely ornament 
uh, design feature in the landscape and aesthetic to this new aesthetic, which is wouldn't it be great and wonderful if it supported all sorts of wildlife? That was research geneticist Richard Olson speaking with Jonathan Wilson at the National Arboretum's Research Facility in Beltsville, Maryland. We have a lot more of their conversation on the web, including the tree species Olson thinks are on the rise. Just head to metroconnection.org. Our next story in this Barriers show is about getting around town, and it probably goes without saying that it takes a lot of patience to deal with all the barriers that show up as we move about each day. Also requiring patience, all the delays surrounding the projects that are supposed to fix our region's traffic woes. And that's the subject of our regular transportation segment from A to B. WAMU's transportation reporter Martin DeCaro joins us now. Hey there, Martin. Hello, Rebecca. All right, so it seems a slow progress is kind of the name of the game here. Um, I want to start with DC's taxi cabs. Um, that's a topic you've done a lot of reporting on. What's the latest there? It's a subject where you wouldn't think it would be a slow change. The universal credit card acceptance in D.C. cabs began back in October. But just this week, members of the D.C. Council questioned the chairman of the D.C. Taxi Cab Commission about reports that some cabbies still refuse to accept credit cards. Let's listen to Council Member Mary Che. I have a case with a family member that was really egregious, um, where uh, a taxi driver had... Um, was given a credit card and said, oh, this is not working, was given another credit card and said this was not working, and said that uh, she had to pay cash. And she said, because it was my daughter and she knows a little bit of these things, she said, well, you know what, I'm going to go into my house now and get you the cash, but I'm going to report you to the taxicab commission. Whereupon this driver locked all of the doors, drove many blocks away, and called the police saying he had a fare that was refusing to pay. What? Yeah, and that may be an extreme case, and for the record, Che's daughter is okay, but there are a number of reports that we've documented and that have been shared on social media of cabbies refusing credit cards because they want cash. Police did not arrest the cab driver who drove off with Che's daughter. Now, Taxi Cab Commission Chairman Ron Linton expressed his regret about that incident and offered this advice for passengers with stubborn cab drivers. If they ride in the vehicle and they get to the end and he refuses a credit card, our recommendation is if you have the cash, pay it. Take the number, call them in, because we're going to get you your money back. The number he's referring to is the ID on every cab's dome light, one letter followed by three numbers. So, Martin, I guess the real question here is why has it been such a headache to make this transition to a credit card system? Well, Rebecca, some cabbies have had legitimate technical problems with their payment console strapped to the back seats. But by now, the commission says they should all be rectified. Some drivers simply want cash because they get the money right away. Others don't want to pay processing fees that are incurred every time they swipe a credit card. Now, you've also reported that some cabbies are using this unauthorized payment device called Square that attaches to a smartphone. Tell us about that. Yeah, Square is a mobile card reader. So you have some taxi cab drivers who only want cash. You have others who use Square instead of their authorized payment provider. So the Taxi Cab Commission is trying to crack down on that as well. 
But the challenge right now is data. It's unclear how many cabbies are trying to skirt the rules. And Chairman Linton admitted all the data they've been collecting since the start of the new smart meter system last fall have not been organized and analyzed yet. So it seems to me the moral of the story here is that the public is going to have to wait for a bunch of kinks to be ironed out. Um, and speaking of waiting, I want to talk about the, the Silver Line, mm-hmm. the much-anticipated metro extension to Dulles. I understand we're a little bit closer to actually getting passenger service on its way. Yeah, this has been a long wait. People are eager to see it go. Monday is the deadline for the Metropolitan Washington Airports Authority, or MWA, to accept or refuse the contractor Bechtel's finding that the Silver Line is ready to be handed to Metro for final testing. I asked MWA's project director, Pat Nowakowski, which way the airport's authority is leaning. I have no opinion about which way we're leaning at this point in time. At this point in time, we're leaning to do a thorough evaluation. Uh, We need to do our proper due diligence of the documents that have been submitted. All right. So hypothetically speaking, let's say his office says yes to Bechtel. Uh, What then? Well, then the project may finally be handed to Metro, and Metro will have up to 90 days to prepare the Silver Line for passenger service. But if the airport's authority thinks Bechtel has to go back to the drawing board and fix some things, then we're looking at another, hopefully, minor delay. All right, so fingers crossed the Silver Line will be running this spring. But what about the Purple Line? I've noticed that several candidates for governor in Maryland have been debating that project. I attended a candidates forum in Silver Spring in which four candidates participated, three Democrats, one Republican. They all support the Purple Line, 16 miles light rail system from Bethesda to New Carrollton. But there are questions about how to pay for it and how to build it. So Maryland's going to hire a private entity to design, build, operate, and maintain the Purple Line for the next several decades. And that's rare for a large transit project in the United States. And one of the Democratic candidates, State Delegate Heather Mazier, raised some questions about that. If we don't determine what will happen if these companies go bankrupt in the middle of construction or operating the Purple Line, what do we do if our ridership numbers don't meet the projections? These are important questions we have to ask because when we don't ask them, we end up with debacles like we have here at the Silver Spring Transit Center. The Silver Spring Transit Center has been mired in delays and cost overruns, although that was not a public-private partnership like the Purple Line will be. Of more immediate concern, there's currently no federal money secured for construction of the Purple Line. Supporters say they're confident they will get the nearly $1 billion they're asking for with the goal of starting construction by the end of next year. So many obstacles, so much time to wait. Commuters want options, but they do take time in some cases. Indeed they do. Well, Martin DeCaro, thank you so much for this update on all things transportation. You're welcome, Rebecca. After the break, a chance to break down boundaries and ask a big question. If some of those elements for us, by us, about us, near us... If some of those elements are missing, is it still black theater? It's coming up next on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're talking about barriers. To kick off this part of the show, we're going to meet some folks who are challenging barriers, especially when it comes to race, ethnicity, and the arts, more specifically, the theatrical arts. On March 1st, the University of Maryland's School of Theater, Dance, and Performance Studies will host the first annual Black Theater Symposium, a day of panel discussions, workshops, and performances exploring the past, present, and future of Black theater. 
I recently met with two of the symposium's organizers who told me the event stemmed from the concern that here we are in this city with a population that's nearly 50 percent African-American, and yet we only have one full-time professional black theater company, African Continuum. And one of the organizers knows that company rather well. My name is Thembi Duncan. I'm the producing artistic director of African Continuum Theater Company. Duncan's co-organizer for the symposium is Scott Reese who, in addition to serving on African Continuum's advisory board, directs and acts at theaters around town. And also, I teach a couple of classes at University of Maryland in black theater and performance. The famed African-American sociologist, historian, author, and civil rights activist W.E.B. Du Bois once called for a black theater that was by us, for us, near us, and about us. And Thembi Duncan says a goal of the symposium is to take that description and apply it to the black theater of today. We want to really investigate what our personal connection is to black theater. And and it is like we're, we're seeing lots more opportunities now, more so than, say, in the 90s, even in the 70s, where a lot of mainstream theaters are performing work by black playwrights, are hiring black directors and are hiring black actors. And so the question does become what is black theater? Uh, if some of those elements for us, by us, about us, near us, if some of those elements are missing, is it still black theater? And those are all questions. We don't expect at the end of this symposium to have some sort of magic solution to some societal or racial problem. This is about us coming together, having a conversation and listening to each other. Well, I want to talk a bit about the history of black theater How do you think black theater fits into the framework of, this is a big question, but how do you think black theater fits into the framework of our nation's history, our nation's culture? It's very interesting, I think. We kind of know it from the 50s and 60s onward. We know from Raisin in the Sun onward and up. But going back to the first published play by William Wells Brown, so the late 19th century, then we go into the early 20th century with Angelina Grimke that wrote the play Rachel. And then once again, you get into the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, and anyone can do the research on that. And then you get into the 50s, and along with Lorraine Hansberry, then we get a little bit later, we get the Alice Childress, we get uh, the Charles Gordones. Then you're going to get into the 70s, social satire uh, Mm -hmm. with people that wrote Day of Absence. Uh, Douglas Turner Ward. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Day of Absence. uh, Yep. So you had these people, and then all of a sudden you get into the 80s with August Wilson, and it kind of exploded. In that time, you also had Susan Laurie Parks and Lynn Nottage and Cheryl West, and there was so much womanism and feminism going on at that time. And the newer voices, of course, you have the documentary theater that came in with Anna DeVere Smith. Who else? It comes to mind Charlene for you. Charlene Woodard? Mm-hmm, Woodard. Exactly. Um, I, I was thinking. I was thinking about Woody King exactly. too, mm-hmm. who, who's back a little bit farther. Yeah. Can we talk about some of the the breakout sessions that are going to be available, or some of the talks that are going to be given? Can you give us a sneak preview of what participants will be able to experience? So the areas we're going to look at: theater for young audiences. We're going to be talking about that. We're going to have a panel discussing musical theater. We also have a design panel where we're going to be talking to scenic designers, costume designers, lighting lighting designers, sound. And that's very exciting with design because we always seem to have trouble finding the next generation of designers of color. There are so few people being represented. So hopefully a, a panel like this 
people from colleges, from high schools, that, hey, if they see other designers of color, you need to see people to then think, oh, I can be doing that. Oh, my gosh. Theater and hip-hop culture, which I'm really excited about. We're going to have some great people on on that panel talking about the intersection of hip-hop culture and theater, hip-hop theater itself, and, and how hip-hop has really been very connected to black theater since it began. And we're just excited about the connection that theaters, universities, institutions are making with us for the symposium. And unfortunately, the first lady was unable to attend. We did invite her, <laughs> but you know, just to, just and to get on her radar. If schedule changes, you're yes. always invited. <laughs> you're that, Michelle? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we want Flotus in the building, but you know, as the years go by, it's going to become bigger and bigger. And I think that what we have so far for, for this March 1st, 2014 is going to be incredible experience for people who are interested in learning more about black theater in general. It's incredible for people who are already practitioners and want to make connections or maybe want to learn about some aspect of black theater that maybe for whatever reason you just haven't touched on. And as people of color, you know, similar to the questions you asked us before, what is black theater? We're always talking about that. I don't know if that has an answer. I think it's different things at different times and in different places. And so I think for that conversation to continue happening, that is the key. When we stop talking about it, that's when we're lost. Well, Thumbi Duncan, Scott Reese, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you. Thank you. You can learn more about the first annual Black Theater Symposium on our website, metroconnection.org. Our next story takes us to a garage, of all places, a garage in northwest D.C. where people have been getting together not to fix up cars or practice with their band, but to engage in some serious hooks, uppercuts, and stiff jabs. It's called the Downtown Boxing Club. But as Chris Klimek tells us, with the surrounding neighborhood going more and more upscale, the humble gym is being priced out. Downtown Boxing Club is just a short walk from the 7th Street Convention Center metro stop. But it can be tough to find, tucked away in Blagden Alley off of 9th Street Northwest. Inside, the scene is spartan even by the standards of boxing gyms. There's a boxing ring and a bag cage and metal shelves of boxing gloves and shoes that cover most of one wall. There's one toilet, it works, and a furnace that doesn't really. The walls and floor are concrete. The Sunday afternoon when I drop by is the first day trainer Dave White has been able to open in nearly a week. It's just been too cold. Come in with that uppercut, go to the head, aim it and make it as accurate as you can, and then get those gloves back, back real fast. The guys here today are the diehards, the ones who come in to train with White four to six times a week. Yeah, okay. All right. like Emmanuel Osai, a 35-year-old lawyer for the government, says he's lost 30 pounds in the three years he's been training here. Here he runs down a typical 90-minute workout. We do shadow boxing for about six minutes. Then we hit the back. Sometimes it's about 40 to 45 minutes. Then you get in the ring with him. You spar for about uh, three minutes. Sometimes it's two, two times two minutes. Afterwards, you jump ropes for nine minutes. And after that, you get in the ring. You do 100 push-ups, and uh, you do 400 sit-ups. But these guys won't be able to come here for these sorts of workouts much longer. On the outside of the gym, notice of a pending liquor license application is posted. 
As rents in the surrounding neighborhood rise, White is being priced out of the space he's leased for seven years to make way for a restaurant called The American. It's a shame. Uh, you know, this is such a great place, and everybody in here appreciates it so much, and it's just a great place to come work out. Josh Cohen is 23 years old. He's been training here for two years. There's not too many no-frills places you can go just without a contract and just come in here. Everybody's, you know, just focus on getting their workout in, nice people. It's just no L.A. boxing type, you know, no one's right. trying to sell you on anything. Yeah. Um, it's just it's all about, you know, working out and, and having fun here. Dues here are $100 a month, pay as you go, no contracts. For that, you can come in and train as often as you want, though you're not getting in the ring to spar until White's convinced you're ready. Newcomers generally take at least two months. I have to make sure that when they get in there, number one, they're not going to run out of gas. And you can be in really good shape and still run out of gas because of the anxiety and all the rest of it. So, you know, i got to make sure that doesn't happen. And I have to make sure they've got these technical fundamentals down. They've got to keep their gloves up. They've got to stay in their stance. They can't cross their feet. White is 62. He started boxing late at age 29. He moved to D.C. from Atlanta in 1984, and he opened his gym in the late 90s across from the Metro Center Red Line stop. I was in a building that had a Popeye's fried chicken on the ground floor, a beauty salon on the second, um, a sexual massage parlor on the third, and I was on the fourth. And that, and that space was affordable. And then the neighborhood changed, and they closed the Popeye's, and I had to move. The space we're in now is White's third location in the 15 years he's been doing this. The first time he looked at it, he passed. I really would rather have is a lower ceiling, steel I-beams, and a lot more bags hanging from the ceiling. Delays with the incoming restaurant, which was first announced last summer, have already given him a reprieve of several months. But it now appears all but certain Downtown Boxing Club will be relocating in 2014. White isn't thrilled to be seeking his fourth location, but he's been through this cycle before. This neighborhood wasn't all that great. There were still, you know, there were still a lot of prostitution, and there were still guys, you know, selling drugs and using drugs. In the alley when I moved in, that was on the decline. And that was 2007. And that was, yeah, I guess that must, yeah, that was 2007. Yeah. And uh, things got better, and now they've, they're putting up condos two blocks from here, and I'm going to have to move again, which is what basically what I've experienced twice already. Hmm. I'm lucky it didn't happen sooner. White says he'd prefer to stay in this part of town, but finding something he can afford here probably won't happen. When you're looking for space for the boxing gym, you're looking at the, bo- you know, the low end of the sure. commercial real estate market. Wherever he ends up next, bars and condos are likely to follow, eventually. I'm Chris Klemick. And now, our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit D.C.'s Gangplank Marina and the Balmoral Greens neighborhood of Clifton, Virginia. My name is Todd Tim. I'm 52, and I live in Balmoral Greens. Balmoral Greens is located just northwest, about a mile northwest of the town of Clifton, Virginia. On average, you have to have five acres per lot. Now, when you do a planned development like Balmoral Greens is, we have it set up so that there's a significant number of lots that have the five acres, and there are a number of lots that are less than the five acres, but hover around the one to one and a half acre mark. You know, you are close in, you can be at your shopping centers in Fair Oaks Mall and your movie theaters in a matter of minutes, but you're still out in the country, out in the woods like my lot. There's a stream that runs right behind my house. You have the wildlife, and you're not really encroached on by your neighbors. 
I think solitude, but still being in a community and having a neighborhood with neighbors that care about each other and watch out for each other is very representative of the neighborhood. My name is Justin Chambers. I'm 40 years old, and my wife and I, Liz, live on a, a boat at the Gangplank Marina. Gangplank Marina is located in the southwest quadrant of Washington, D.C. It's on, along the where 7th Street dumps into Main Avenue. I grew up around inland waterways and boats and, um, and just have always loved being around water, the, the, uh, the peacefulness of it. The southwest Washington, D.C. waterfront is undergoing a significant redevelopment, but one great accommodation for the liveaboard boaters is that we are able to stay in place at Gangplank for the duration of the construction and will be offered slips in the new marina. We've been down here uh, about six years now, and, and um, we've come to really uh, become fond of the, the local community here and the, um, the camaraderie. I think boaters somehow have a <laughs> kind of a universal uh, laid-back attitude, and um, that's certainly the case here, even in D.C., and that's one of the, the things uh, that's great about this um, living situation for us. We heard from Todd Tim in Balmoral Greens and Justin Chambers at the Gangplank Marina. If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, send an email to metro at wamu.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jonathan Wilson, Martin DeCaro, Kathita Cardoza, and Lauren Ober, along with reporter Chris Klimek. WAMU's Managing Editor of News is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's Managing Producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our Editorial Assistant. Our intern is Tyler Daniels. Lauren Landau and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU Engineering and Digital Media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our Door to Door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can find all the music we use each week on metroconnection.org. And if you missed part of the show, you can stream the whole thing on metroconnection.org by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. You can also subscribe to our podcast there or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll be on the mend. We'll meet skiers who aren't letting spinal cord injuries keep them from the slopes. We'll follow up with a comedian and actor whose eyesight may be failing, but his career is on the rise. And we'll return to Virginia's barrier islands and hear from scientists working to restore the area's fragile ecosystem. It's probably the wildest part of the Atlantic coast that's left. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.